0: What you've got to do is you, you, you have to see the whole picture and then you have all these little small aspects of it. and, and So it's a case of zooming in and zooming out all the time. So um, you've got to understand what the big picture looks like and then get prepared to get stuck in with the fine detail.
1: everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sick, form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the student lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place with them. Through the University of Law's pro bono programme, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment-focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box
2: of the podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie Inay and I am the host of today's episode. On the show with me today is David Boyle, a barrister whose practice covers a broad spectrum of complex, high-value and unusual multi-track claims at Dean's Court Chambers. This is also where David was head of mini-pupilage for six consecutive years. David is also the author of several well-known books, including the extremely helpful The Mini-Pupilage Workbook and An Introduction to Personal Injury Law. He is also very active on LinkedIn, providing great pieces of advice to aspiring barristers on a daily basis. During this episode, David speaks about everything from CV and cover letter writing to first and second stage interviews to how to solve problems creatively. So, without further ado, it's David Boyle. Welcome to the Student Lawyer, David. It's great to have you here. And you, nice to have you. Or vice versa. Be happy. Well, thank you for inviting us into your study. <laughs> and it's a very nice one.
0: It is. The county court sitting at David Boyle Mansions. <laughs>
2: right I'm just going to jump in with my first question uh, just to set the scene a little bit can you tell us the reason that you chose to become a barrister
0: so my father was an industrial chemist and he read chemistry um he did math physics and chemistry at school read chemistry at university went into industry became a chemist and he should probably have become a chemical engineer or a teacher um but he ended up just following that linear progression and so there was always an encouragement to do something a bit outside the box from the subjects that we were doing at school and I used to watch Crown Court when I could skive off school when I was at junior school back in I remember it in black and white whether or not we had a colour tv in those days I don't know but I remember it in black and white and I went off to read law um, at Cambridge back in 1991 uh, but I didn't really want to go to London. I wanted to come back to Manchester and uh, practice here. Uh, I always say that the, the biggest thing for me was soft water. It sounds daft, but you, you drink black coffee, you you shave and you get around to it, and, and um, you want to feel clean when you get out of the shower. So soft water is a big thing. And these are pre-internet days, so you couldn't just Google, can I be a barrister? So I'd always assumed that you'd come back and be a solicitor because the barristers were all in London. And, um, at the end of my first year at, um, Churchill, Nigel Porter, who was my director of studies uh, and I sitting outside the college library, um, he would have been about 25 or 26 years old and already director of studies at Churchill because he was a phenomenally bright chap. And he asked me what I wanted to do, um, what are you thinking of doing after all this? And I said something like, um, I really enjoy the problem questions. I really enjoy standing up in a supervision and fighting for my side of the argument, no matter how perverse it might be. And I'm wondering as to whether I might go down the bar route. Um, and I think I was acutely aware that I wasn't at Downing. I wasn't at Trinity Hall. I wasn't at one of the the law colleges. Um, I didn't wear V-neck jumpers. I wore... Um, and Maiden T-shirts and um, and what have you. And um, he said two things. Um, The first one, he said, I think you're good enough, which coming from him was the kick at the backside that I quite clearly needed. Um, And then he told me that in this day and age, there isn't a lot of difference between being a city solicitor and being a barrister. Um, He said, you'll work ridiculous hours, you'll earn ridiculous money, and the main difference is when you're about 30... You'll be sat in a wine bar uh, somewhere. Some gorgeous blonde will be sat opposite. Uh, and she'll say, what do you do for a living? Embarrassed barrister sounds sexier. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it hasn't happened. It hasn't <laughs> happened yet. Um, but, <laughs> but the funny thing was I, I came away from the conversation not thinking, okay, I'm going to be a barrister. I came away from the conversation thinking, blimey, I've always been a barrister. Mm -hmm. and it was that realization it was like the blinkers had come off and what had actually happened was I'd made a decision way back when I'd come to a crossroads I'd not even realized I'd come to the crossroads it was just me natural and um, it's it's not an easy sell because everybody these days has this backstory as to how they became a barrister and what prompted them to to be a barrister and how all the hoops through, you know, through which they've jumped to become a barrister. And for me, there was just this realization that I am an avid problem solver. That's what excites me. Um, I like the dopamine effect. I I like the little blue tick on WhatsApp and the little red dot on LinkedIn and solving problems is something that I I just like doing so that realization that this was what I was I just was actually I was I was going to add another verb to that this is it's just a verb uh, it's just what I was um, was a fabulous moment and for me this really serendipitous tipping point you know the sliding rooms moment where you just the sliding doors moment where you suddenly think to yourself oh yeah that's it the end uh, so it was There wasn't a moment where I decided to become a barrister. There was a moment I realised I just was.
2: Yeah, like it was your life's task.
0: I think that some people have explained it
2: as. Yeah,
0: it was a it was a boil shaped hole. It was just a boil. I was a boil shaped peg, and there was a boil shaped hole, and I went, "Yeah, I love that. Thank you very much." So yes, that that and and looking back. it was absolutely the right thing for me to do. Mm. Um, it's not the right thing for everybody to do. And, and I keep saying to people that there's no shame in not wanting to to do this uh, job. But for me, it was the lifestyle, the life, that I could see myself living. And, and you know, that would be, what, 29 years ago now. And um, I've not aged a bit. <clears throat> Ish. <laughs> but, but, um, so
2: you must have read like your fair share of mini-pupilage and pupillage applications. Oh, do, you, yeah. do you ever find that people are trying to tailor themselves too much to the chambers and not perhaps giving their true um, reason for wanting to be a barrister
0: or not so much? Yeah, I think, I think the, the issue tends to be, um, I think most candidates have uh, a lack of understanding about where they are on the ladder right I think that most people have um, an overinflated view of their abilities they think that they're further along than they actually are Mm -hmm. they think that they're better than they actually are because it's what's really difficult with applying for mini pupillages and applying for pupillages is understanding where you fit into the wider cohort because we know now this year round, yeah this time around what was it, 7% of applicants got a pupillage. Mm. That was the level of oversubscription this time round. And then part of that's COVID and everything else. But we're talking about 93% not getting a pupillage. Trying to assess whether you are in the top 10% or the top 5% or the top 20% or the top 50% of that cohort is really difficult because you don't see the whole cohort. You, know, when, when I did bar school, everybody was at um, one bar school in London at the same time, and you, you had a slightly better idea. But even then, you thought, well, in this particular supervision group, are we purely by chance 14 fantastic candidates, or are we purely by chance 14 dreadful candidates and, and all the really good people are on the other side of that door? And, and that... Is a problem. So what you find is that people will sell themselves really hard for a mini pupilage, um, and they get the, they're over, almost overly boastful about how good they are. And each set of chambers has a different um, raison d'être for their mini pupillage scheme. Some want to assess them. Some want to educate them some want to get rid of them, some, <laughs> a whole host of different things in play. So I think that people overcomplicate their letters. It's a really simple idea. You say, this is where I am. Mm. This is where I'd like to be. This is what I think I can get from spending time at Fred Bloggs Chambers. Um, does that work? And you dress it up. You you know, you, you ask some... Um, pertinent questions hopefully and uh, uh, make them think about who you are when they read your application but people who write in saying I'm the best barrister since sliced bread was invented and I'm ready to rock and roll and I just need a mini pupillage from you to, to show me and you you bring them in and go right let's start with something easy try this and they look at you half an hour later completely bemused by the whole thing so I think Uh, the biggest mistake people make is not understanding what they're trying to gain from the experience and thinking that it's just a tick box on their CV. Um, They think that if they have done three mini pupillages, two moots, one debate, one, you know, one sabbatical um, in death row um, chambers in Texas and did uh, a three-month voluntary stint at the local homeless shelter. They've ticked all the boxes and they're ready to be a barrister. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting there going, well, what did you gain from that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I think I think it's easy to make mistakes. Keeping it simple is really helpful. Um, yeah. And say, so if you've got any questions for me, if you've got any particular things that you need to ask me, let me know. That makes a massive difference. Um, to somebody who is potentially going to be reading dozens and dozens and dozens of these things. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: Years ago, I got so frustrated by seeing the same phrase in 50% of the letters. I Googled it and found it on the University of Kent website. Oh, no. Yeah, drank about a bottle and a half of Sauvignon Blanc and sent them an email, a very polite email, saying in the profession that... Um, Prides itself on independence of thought. You do realise that everybody who's using this this particular uh, draft is proving themselves uh, unsuitable. And um,
2: this is mentioned in your book,
0: isn't it? It is, I think. Right. Um, uh, but yes, <laughs> that, but um, that was just me getting frustrated that they kept on saying the same things. Um,
2: it's just a bit lazy, isn't it? Don't you think?
0: I think people are, t- are, are people are. Uh, um you think they're scared to like I think they're scared to make a fool of themselves
2: yeah
0: um they don't want to be too radical mm. and they think that you know just following a precedent is the safe way of doing it but the biggest problem is that a lot of the time when you look at careers and you're talking to careers advisors, whether it's at school whether it's at university, Whatever stage you're at, they're giving you a different perspective. It's very, very rare that people get the chance to talk to a practising barrister who's prepared to tell them the ins and outs of it without putting everything through a filter. And the difficulty comes when you go off to the careers advisor at school and they say, oh, people, barrister, mm, very difficult. And they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what law is. They don't know what's... They, they know the, the theory of it, mm. but that's it. So um, I think it's important that you write a decent letter in your own language, um, but with a sense of formality to it. Um, but appreciate that you're the one asking and not demanding.
2: Yeah. That makes sense. It really does. So, can you tell us a little bit, a, a little bit about your practice and uh, the type of clients that you represent?
0: Yeah. So, I'm I'm a person. People, I say, what do you practice? You know, what's your speciality? I, I normally say that I'm a personal injury and insurance fraud barrister. Right. Um, although these days the two seem ever more intertwined. Um, when I started, fraud was a very particular specialism. And there were very, very few barristers in the country who were doing it on a regular basis. And um, then probably 15 to 20 years ago, it became a bit of a buzzword and Mm. everybody started piling into fraud work as if it was something they'd just discovered and they'd invented. And um, what I do is I I represent both claimants and defendants. I represent... My my claimant practice tends to be... um, small to medium size high street firms and similar sort of uh, firms who will send me anything interesting, anything difficult, anything beyond um cut and paste type work. Um and very often they'll send me one to five cases a year. They won't send me a huge amount of stuff, but you'll get a steady um trail of stuff coming through and you know what what's next? Oh there's this one, there's this one, there's this one. So you've got a very personal relationship with the solicitors and you're their big brother. Um, you're the one that they go to to help them out when when the problems uh, hit. The defendant work, I think, tends to come from bigger firms, um, bulk work, in the sense that a lot of the insurance companies now have deals with chambers, you're on a panel, um, and within that panel they'll have particular favourites. And again, you've got individual solicitors, individual insurer clients Um, who will say, yeah, I want to use this person for this sort of work. And uh, rightly or wrongly, I've got a reputation for somebody who um, I can do the job on paper, I can do the job in court, I can see answers where other people don't see them. Um, I'm a problem solver, uh, as we said before. So I tend to get these cases which are... Non-linear cases, difficult cases, um, not necessarily worth a huge amount of money. People, I think, equate complexity with value, and you can have something that's worth very little, but the the complexities of it are, are quite significant. A lot of my work at the moment, I've been doing a lot of uh, the holiday sickness work that you'll have read about and, and seen on the TV uh, for the last three or four years uh, for defendants. Um, I've done and and, and Personal injury work, as with all types of litigation, goes through trends phases. There are, you know, you'll get some uh, procedural point which catches everybody unawares, right. and we'll spend three years fighting over that, and then we'll move just when the court of appeal sort it out. Something else comes along to take its place. So you're constantly reinventing yourself, and I think that's one of the things that people, when they start off, don't necessarily appreciate. They think that it's just going to be. A steady progression through the gears. I, I'll start representing people whose claims are worth a thousand pounds, and then I'll work up to five thousand and ten thousand, and I'll just keep on going until I only represent people whose claims are worth a million pounds. But actually, there's a whole load of other stuff going on in the background and lots of little diversions to be had, and um, it keeps you busy. Mm-hmm. It keeps your mind whirring around.
2: Do you have to do a lot of um, cross-examination exna- cross for witnesses
0: with the, with the uh, type of work that you're in? I do. Um, I think a lot of personal injury practitioners, um, particularly those who do the low-end value, find themselves processing cases. But the very nature of the work I do I'm brought in because I'm cross-examining people. I'm brought in to, to have that fun in court. And um, whether it's lay people or expert witnesses, I do a lot of cross-examination of experts. Um, I mean, the last three years doing the work I've been doing, I must have cross-examined probably a couple of dozen experts now.
2: Is that something that you have always been quite good at? Is it? Do you think it's something that all barristers are quite natural at doing because they're so inquisitive
0: no i think barristers for the most part are pretty poor at asking questions right understanding which bits it's it's like looking at a, a, a jumper and trying to work out which thread you want to tuck on to try and unravel the whole thing and i think that with experts a lot of ex- we treat experts with respect which perhaps is sometimes um more than they're due. Mm-hmm. When you talk to experts, and, and I, I train experts, I, I give seminars to experts and train in-house, um, and they always come back and say they're more terrified of the lawyers, but I'm never quite sure who's more terrified in that yeah. exchange. So cross-examining experts is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, I wrote the book about experts about five, six years ago now, I suppose, and it was something that interested me. Then, um, and it's amazing how sitting there with your feet on the desk, staring at the ceiling, thinking about things, oh, we don't do that anymore. You know, we're not supposed to, heaven forbid, we should put our feet on the desk, but there's this sense that we need to be producing things all the time. We need to be you're doing the next piece of work, signing this off, ticking this box. There needs to be a visual product at the end of it all um and I probably spent about two days just not writing anything just staring into space and every so often somebody would stick their head around the door and offer me a coffee or you know break my train of concentration just so I got to a really good bit um and then but, but but after a bit you start thinking well I wonder if uh or how do how do I attack this particular framework how do I set it up and we don't think I think we we learn by osmosis we learn by reading books we very rarely think for ourselves from first principles mm-hmm. uh, anymore so, when people get the opportunity to do that and you know when I get the opportunity to do that, I love it because it's something different and you can you, you step back afterwards and go that was that was actually time well spent. I'll, I don't know if I'll use it this week or next week or in three years time. Um, but it's something that I think that it's a huge privilege to have had that opportunity to stop and think. and it was only because I forced myself to do it. And then afterwards, you 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 reap the, the benefits of that. Um, and then you try and pass on that information to other people mm-hmm. around you. Um, but I don't think cross-examination comes naturally to an awful lot of the, the barristers I speak to and, and the students I speak to. And they think it's really easy. They think asking questions is really easy. It, it's not.
2: Yeah, I can imagine it's not. But do you think of you? Don't, you're not thinking of them on the spot, are you? You, you have time to prep.
0: You have, you have time to prep, but actually, you, it's not. There isn't a uh, some sort of roadmap to cross examination that says you know it's, it's not a motorway. <laughs> it, it's, yes. it's, it's a cross country right. orienteering exercise, and you'll have points that you think you're going to touch on. You'll have particular references and documentation that you want to touch on. Um, but you'll end up with, I'll end up with two or three double-sided pages of of A4 of notes potentially for a really heavy cross-examination. Right. Um, But they're all bullet points and with cross-references on. And then I'll take out a different pen and normally, normally about an hour before cross-examination, an hour before the start of the case, when everything else has just settled down in my mind, I'll start going. Okay, where do I want to start?
2: Oh, that's interesting. And,
0: and you will see my notebooks have got you know, one particular ink with all the the basic notes and all the cross references in. Mm. And then in a different colour ink, there'll be a one, a two, scrubbed out three. Right. Two. There's a two A here, and 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 eventually I'll start drawing lines around it to to try and show myself the plan that I'd like to go. Weird. Right, I see. Be creative. Yeah, you know, but then you get there, and, and the question, the answer to question one takes you straight to number six anyway. And, and you, you so you'll do one, and then you see it jump to six, seven, eight, and then you go back to two. And but under, what you've got to do mm. is you 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 have to see the whole picture, and then you have all these little small aspects of it, and, and so it's a case of zooming in and zooming out all the time. So um, mm. you've got to understand what the big picture looks like and then get prepared to get stuck in with the fine detail. Um, but uh, I see people reading questions out from the list and it's like, that's so inflexible. It, it's You can't respond to the nuances of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, once you get the experience of doing the job, you start having a faith that you can ask questions better than the witness is going to be able to answer them. Mm. Yeah. Until you get to that stage, it becomes a matter of prep and prep and prep and prep. But it, you can't be too rigid. Mm. And it comes down to the fact that we we teach people how to do the job properly. But the job itself is all about dealing with things that aren't going according to plan yeah and it's that ability to deal with the unexpected that's going to set you apart from a a different balance a different candidate yeah Yeah.
2: um
0: so when i interview pupil for, for pupillage the questions i'm asking aren't questions that they'll have been asked by anybody else and it's impossible for them to prepare for it and then you start seeing what is actually going on between their ears when they that as something that's completely unexpected.
2: That's interesting. I'm not sure if I would like to be interviewed by you or not. Like to be interviewed by you I'm not? I, I think to, I, uh... I think I've paid
0: all the therapy bills off from the last tranche now. But
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back on now to CVs and applications. So I know that you've um, you've told us that you know it's best to keep them simple, be humble. But is there anything that you've seen um, that, like a, a general theme that makes a good CV or covering letter, anything that you really like to, like, I don't know, jump out at you?
0: What I would say is that um, every set of chambers is looking for something different. Every single set. I've, I, you know, I have an awful lot of friends at the bar who are obviously my sort of seniority, Um, plus or minus 10 years. But I talk to people who deal with mini pupils. I talk to people who deal with uh, pupillages. Because as soon as you get together, these things crop up in conversation. Mm -hmm. And everybody has a different thing that lights up. So there are sets of chambers where they're really interested in whether you've neutered. Um, There are sets of chambers who are really interested in your university there are sets of chambers who are really interested in your sporting prowess or um how you write or uh, and there are all these different things um and the myth is that there is one perfect cv that will get you every single pupilage interview that you apply for and, and and it's never going to be that way because Every set of chambers is going to be looking for something different. I'm looking for um, oomph. I'm looking for a well-written, um, grounded, raw talent. Um, I want, we, we tend to look for people who are particularly good at something else as well because we're looking for people who are going to be multitasking who are going to be working under pressure who are going to be good at what they're doing who can interact with other people um so we find that if somebody is particularly talented at something else it means that they can um, put their efforts into that particular talent work with it develop it take it onwards Um, and that doesn't mean that you have to play, you know, county level rugby or mm. be a grade eight, um, you know, harmonica player or whatever. Votes mm-hmm. you vote, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, and and people will turn around and say, well, hold on a second, you know, that discriminates against people who don't have those opportunities to to play violin with a halle or or whatever it is because they're a carer or because they they, you know, they have to do part-time jobs or they have other roles that they have but the fact is that's who you are those are the talents that you have if you're a carer for you know small kids elderly relatives siblings whatever it happens to be you should be able to stop when you come to sell yourself Mm. you should be able to stop and think well what makes me good at what i am who what makes me who i am what makes me what i am what makes me good at that if what you're really good at is looking after the you know if, you're, if you've got two young kids that you're looking after whilst you're doing your degree, if you've got an elderly relative that you is desperately in need of your care so that you can't go off and do X,Y, and Z, if you volunteer with a particular charity, a lot of chambers really want to see that you've done voluntary work, those lessons that you learn, those life lessons, you should be able to distill them.
2: So it's not what you do, it's what
0: you've gained from it. It's what you take from that. And and you should be able to distill what you've done. Anything that we do, whether it's going to Tesco's or whether it's Digging the garden or, or whatever it is. And people who, I'm sure that, you know, there are people out there who who follow me on LinkedIn and they see what I'm, I'm meandering. Like, what am I talking about today? Oh, I'm talking about next door's builders. Or I'm talking about this thing. Little things that we do in life will always have parallels in law. Always. Because law is, for my money, life distilled to the nth degree. So all those, um, all humanity, ultimately, you cut away the dregs of it, you distill it and distill it and distill it, and the problems that get a, that, that top of the iceberg are the problems of humanity that actually require lawyers to get involved. All they've done is taken the life yeah. and picked out the best bits probably isn't right, exciting bits, the, the the stressful bits, I suppose. Yeah. So, so actually saying... What do I do in my spare time? I work in the local kebab shop. Um, And what do you get from that? Well, I deal with people who are drunk. I deal with people who are obstreperous, who are difficult. I've got to be efficient. I've got pressure on me from this and this. I work late nights. What do we take from that? Well, actually, I'm going to go into a job where I work late nights and I have a lot of pressure and I have people who are obstreperous. I have to deal with people. Uh, the only difference is that in the magistrates court you're not necessarily offering people extra hot chili sauce. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And you think just one thing extra thing is okay, or or ideally would you like to see
0: a, a few things? Um it's all to do with what you're doing. Mm. Okay. If you're doing if you're doing something to a really, really good standard, the chances are that there's not going to be that much else on your List of things that you're doing. Yeah, you know, I look back at my CV. I found a copy of my CV. It's around it somewhere. I think I've lost probably best I it keeps hidden. I found <laughs> a copy of my CV from 1993 or 1994, and there's a list of all the things I would represented the college
2: at, mm. and
0: I I represented Churchill because Churchill had umpteen different sports teams, and if you wanted to play, they were going to accommodate you. So I played for the second 11 um, in goal, the third 11 up front. I played uh, prop for the second 15. I played on the line for the American football team. Uh, the fifth, I think it was, squash team. Uh, I rode for a term in novice A vote. Um, did I do anything to a particularly high standard? No, because actually, if you stop and think about that, none of those were things that I then took on to to represent the college at you know a proper level. yeah. I played county-level chess, I played international chess tournaments. Um that was the main one that I was doing. But you you but it's what you take out of it. Mm-hmm. You there'll be certain activities where you take a huge number of different things out. If your what else do I do consists of eating chocolates, drinking myself into a stupor with herbal tea, and um you know, watching Netflix, it, you're just trying to get some... Well, what do you get out of it? Do you think you can get something out of that one? Well... Or is it I better think, not to confess? I'm not going to think about this one. What can I get out of chocolates, herbal teas and Netflix? Um I suppose you, you would say that you're um trying to widen your range of experience by watching... The stuff I watch on, on Netflix is is... French drama, sub- subtitled French drama or Flemish police shows is probably what I watch. So I, I would have to claim that my TV watching was to um, further my understanding of the European Union or something like that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't come over mind and look at my suggested uh, Netflix shows. <laughs> There's nothing like that. <laughs> but um, I think not too far away. so you've already kind of like explained what it is that you don't want to see somebody that's too boastful too much is there anything else that you you see people making off like these common mistakes
0: i think there's no excuse now for a poorly written piece in terms of grammar yeah you um you can get Grammarly for goodness sake just Run grammarly through it. It'll spot whether you've used the passive or the, the, the wrong voice or the apostrophes in the wrong place. And, you know, you're applying for a... Certainly when you're applying for a pupillage, you're potentially applying for a lifelong role where people are going to judge you by the mm. quality of your written word. Mm. And the idea that you're writing gibberish when there is a facility there for either, you know, there, there are free grammar checks available, um, and mm. there are modestly priced uh, better versions available. And the idea that you will invest um, a huge amount of money on fees and not spend a modest amount making sure that you're covering mm. that has been written by somebody other than you know, a yeah. six-year-old—that I think is a real. Um, it's poor. Yeah. It's. 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 It, it doesn't. Um, impress because what we want is somebody who's going to be, um, we want somebody that the client's going to respect. It's not about whether chambers respect you or like you, it's whether the client's going to like you. And you can't legislate for whether people are going to be liked by clients. I thought I was going to do some criminal work when I started. It became very apparent very quickly that criminal clients did not like me. It was fine, you know, I, I can live with that. I've got broad shoulders and and it didn't, um, it was no, uh, there was no great sadness when I realised that I wasn't going to be some stellar defence lawyer and um, defending murders in the old Bailey because it wasn't something that I hugely wanted to do. I wanted to observe it, I wanted to have a go at it, I wanted to see whether I was any good at it. But when you're applying... If you're uh, the sort of person who is just going to wind people up or come across as somebody who's not actually very good or hasn't got the foundation, the ballast in there to represent the client, people are going to look at you and go, there's somebody over there who's better. And this is a buyer's market. You know, this this is a buyer's market where we get X hundred people saying, can I please have a pupillage? And ultimately second isn't good enough yeah um and i think that's what people really struggle with that they seem to think that they look at the person who's got it and they'll compare themselves to the person who's got the offer if they can find out who's got the Mm -hmm. offer and they'll say what's that person got that i've not got Mm -hmm. what are the differences between me and them but what they don't realize is that there's the rest of the cohort to take into consideration Mm -hmm. as well and there are people who they were compared to where they they fell away against somebody who then got knocked out at a later stage right. um and people don't necessarily appreciate that so so the answer is just be really really good and have a bit of oomph on top and yes there isn't one right answer to this is yeah. There? Yeah. <laughs>
2: No, I'm currently reading a book, Faultless Grammar, for lawyers, which I find is really interesting. It's, i do you know, I've learned a lot just about um, the most basic things, things that, I don't know, like just things that never really came into my world before. So I, I definitely think that it's worth picking up a grammar book just to make sure what you think you're doing is correct and then always double checking it.
0: We don't get taught it at school anymore.
2: Well, even if I did, I don't remember. It's long gone and forgotten.
0: But, but I, I, I don't remember being taught grammar, English grammar. Um, I, I did Latin and I did ancient Greek and I did French. I did five years of French and Latin, three years of ancient Greek. So I learned these grammatical structures for other languages, but without ever really grasping English grammar the way that somewhere along the line I, I picked up.
2: Well, I'm glad you're still using your French with your Netflix subscription. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad um, it's still coming in handy.
0: <laughs> A little bit of ancient Greek, never never did anything.
2: <laughs> How so pupillage application that's, you know, made it through the CV and cover letter stage and they're preparing for their first interview. How should this um, applicant prepare for their first interview?
0: Can, can, can I do the plug at this point and, and say... Go well, on then, please. What they should be doing is they should be reading one of these. Um, <laughs>
2: the the just, For the recording, I'll just say that it's David's mini Pupilage handbook. Yeah, it's the... Workbook, sorry. I, I have this book. book, I should have right. got the title right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I should just say, that's, that's uh, as you'll be aware, Stephanie, that's this is the first 12 lessons that I would teach... Anybody who came into the mini pupilage with me, so we've touched on CVs, which are chapter three, and covering letters, which are chapter two. And when you get to interview, you're probably looking at four and ten and a bit of twelve. And it's about being in the zone on the okay. day. A few years ago, I, I chatted to a lad who was um, a brilliant candidate, CV wise, he was absolutely superb and um, I'd spoken to him before the interview I was nothing to do with the interview panel that year I'd spoken to him about six months before I just noticed his name on the list and um, he didn't get in through the first interview didn't get, right uh, and he ended up somewhere else in Manchester is doing very very well for himself in an area that he wouldn't have been doing had he come to Dean's Court I spoke to him um, afterwards and said what happened and he said I had a bad day
2: oh no that's so sad no it
0: no. was brilliant really it was lovely because I'd rung him up to congratulate him because I'd seen that he'd had the offer from somewhere else. Yeah. I thought that it was right and to take the opportunity to give him a shout. And but, but he had that awareness that he'd had a bad day. We all have bad days. Mm-hmm. We all have days where you can't find the words or you, you come away kicking yourself and thinking, I wish I'd said this or I didn't mm-hmm. say that. Um, and I thought it was really very telling that – he knew that that day was just, he got out of the wrong side of the bed. He, something went wrong that meant that he didn't click. And because this is a really personal exercise when you get to your interview stage, mm. um, and look, it can be anything. It can be that you read the story on page eight of the newspaper rather than the story on page nine. And then, you know, the question that came up in interview was on page nine. You, you you don't know what's going to derail you on any given day. All you can do is have that sense of um, balance. You know, it's like watching a, an athlete and they just seem to glide across the ground. And, you know, I don't, I trudge, I stomp when I go from, walk from eight to eight, but... but Oh, you, you watch these genuine athletes and they have that sense of balance, which is fluid. It is marvellous to watch. Um, and that's what we're looking for, somebody who can just deal with everything effortlessly. Um, and some days it just doesn't work. Mm. Just yeah. doesn't. So, some days it's fantastic, some days it doesn't work. Um, And I don't think there's one, there's never one particular way. I mean, I remember in my interview at Dean's Court, there was a particular moment. And years later, 20 years later, I was talking to one of the people who had interviewed me who remembered the same incident. The idea that two people remember the same incident in such similar terms is, is really interesting. But what had happened was we had a fairly long, thin room and I was on one side of the table with my back against the wall, and the six or seven were on the other long side of the table. Um, And I was trying to convey, I don't know what the question was, but I was trying to convey an answer which involved me talking to to all of them at the same time. And to do that, I wanted to sit back um, against the wall to give myself a better field of view. And to do that, because the wall was so close behind me, I turned the chair to one side and shuffled around, and I crossed my legs to just get myself in a better position, effectively, to, to do that, right. to, to talk to them. Not quite sure why that would have worked, but it was what I was doing. And as I went across, my, I went to put my right foot over my left knee. And as I did, I was halfway through the sentence, and I noticed that it was a piece of fluff sitting right on the crease of my trousers. Okay. And halfway through the sentence... I stopped, picked this piece of fluff off, shook it off onto the floor, and then carried the sentence on as if nothing had happened. So probably half a second, three quarters of a second, almost like a record, just skipping once Mm -hmm. and then carry on. um, But what it conveyed to them, it seems, (laughs) says he, 25 years later, but what it conveyed to them was this was somebody who there was a diversion, there was a distraction, and it was resolved, and then we carried on as if nothing had happened. And that mm-hmm. ability just to take that piddling little distraction out of the equation, bin it off, and then carry on halfway through the sentence. Not oh, where was I?
2: Yeah. Just
0: as if nothing had happened. Um Fluid. It was fluid. And, and I couldn't do it again in a million years. <laughs> sure. I bet you could. Yeah, I got this vision of all the, everybody watching this going, oh, I better make sure there's fluff on my trousers when I go into interviews. <laughs> it, it just happened. It was a natural, entirely natural moment. And I think that's quite important, that if you're not entirely natural in an in interview, it really does come across that you're you're trying too hard.
2: Sounds like you're very tidy and in good order as well, and you have an eye oh, for
0: detail. I, I've got an eye for detail, but everything else is complete chaos.
2: <laughs> I, I can see your room. I can see your room, it's really not. So how does the first interview differ from second or third?
0: I think again, every chambers is different. I mean you're gonna have a an interview which aims at identifying whether the CV, the intellect and ability, which is um, apparent on the CV, is is genuine. And you're going to have an interview um, where they're looking at personality and saying, is this somebody who, irrespective of the quality, has personality defects which with which we we don't want to live (laughs) um and sometimes you'll have those mixed and matched within an interview um you know the the i suppose theoretically when you're doing a first interview um the question is being asked is this person good enough and the second interview should be about do we like this person enough um but I think unless you have really good lines of communication between the interview panels, and, of course, you don't want to have particularly good lines of communication between interview panels because you don't want panel A tainting panel B, but you need to understand what panel A have been talking about if you're on panel B so that you're not going over the same ground. Um, I, th- I think there is a sort of Swiss cheese effect um, with the whole process that you're whether it's an initial sift whether it's the first interview whether it's the second interview you're trying to get rid of people who are wrong Mm
2: -hmm.
0: there's a risk that you'll get rid of people who are very very good who just don't sit well with the interview panel that they've they've managed to draw that day Mm -hmm. um and there's always going to be a risk that if you're getting everybody lined up and trying to get through that particular one hole through the Swiss cheese, you might end up limiting yourself in terms of non-standard candidates. But I think there's a huge awareness now, Yeah, you know, we've got training, both you know, mandated training from the circuit and from the, the bar council. We're all supposed to be aware of exactly what we're looking for and the traps that we can fall into when we're, we're interviewing Um so we're trying to make those, Swiss, those holes in the Swiss cheese a bit wider so that people yeah. can, get a better chance of getting through. But ultimately, you start off with 150, 250, 350 applicants, and you're going to give one offer. Yeah, um, That just means that sometimes you've got to make really harsh decisions.
1: Before we get into the second half of the episode, I'd like to take this opportunity to talk about the sponsors of today's show and the law school that I chose to study my LPC at, and that's the University of Law. The University of Law believes in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. Their experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life experience from the start. They offer a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment-focused, toning key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast.
0: You
2: not discourage people
0: from reapplying then? Well, I don't think so. I think it's interesting. We've had um, certainly three, possibly possibly more than that, of our recent, your know, last 10 years, recruits in chambers have been people who've come in the year after they were rejected or two yeah. or three years after they were rejected because they weren't ready and then they go off and do something else and they come back and we say, actually, you know, this year you, you get through the gap and... Yeah. Uh, well done i think if you're five six seven eight years into your quest for pupillage um Well
2: oh, i don't know to... when you've gone that far though you can't turn back can you when you're in when you're in that far i can i can imagine like if you keep writing applications and not getting through you know it's time to pick up that grammar book or listen to this podcast. Yeah, I, um... I, I don't know when you when you're making it to these interviews i'd be so inclined to
0: just keep going one one of the questions is I'm not allowed to ask anymore. <laughs> oh, do I want to hear it? <laughs> Would you ever leave a play at half time? Would you ever leave a play at the interval? I have not,
2: but my mother has. <laughs> Thank goodness I don't take after her.
0: Um but, but the reason the reason that became was a question was you if you're looking at a case where you're on a no-win, no fee, for instance, for a claimant and the merits of, you know, you you start thinking, yeah, this is something I'm interested in. That moment where you look at it and go, time to to call it a draw, time to walk away, is a really hard quality to develop Um, and an ability to stop and go, I just don't want to be doing this anymore. And there's a good reason why I don't want to do this anymore. And having the the balls. I mean you know, somebody else will say, well, you know, you committed to it, you should sit there and suffer through to the very, very end. But you know, if you stay stay at the very to the very, very end of the play and you think the second half was worse than the first, and you come out and all the taxes have gone home and it's yeah. pouring in the rain, you're going to regret not leaving at half time and, and heading home, aren't you? So I think that um need like for activity is quite important. But as I said, I'm not allowed to ask that question anymore. In case it's, you know, too difficult.
2: <laughs> but if that's the most difficult question
0: you ask, nah, that's not in my top ten. <laughs> I'm not telling you the rest of them, Stephanie. But um, but 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 it's a it's a sort of question that people aren't expecting to be asked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yet, when you stop and think about it, there's a really clear reason why it's a an important trait. <laughs>
2: I can see two, like, I I don't think there's a wrong answer with that one, though. though. I really don't. It's, you know, it's are you sticking it out to the end um, because, you know, you just think it's the right thing to do and really shouldn't? Or are you being lazy if you give up halfway? It depends on the play, doesn't it? It
0: depends what you're going to do with the second half. If what you're going to do is nip across to that restaurant that you've planning you know, you've been planning on trying for ages and haven't had the chance to yeah. eat yet, and you know take advantage of the time that you've now got, if you can go and do something constructive with the time that you've saved, mm. if what you're actually going to do is go home and drink copious amounts of herbal tea and watch Netflix, yeah, <laughs>
2: it's doesn't it depend good- on the actors?
0: Oh, God, no, I've seen some very famous actors in utterly dreadful plays and one particular one which didn't even have an interval, which was the only reason we didn't leave at half-time.
2: <laughs> I, I would have pretended that I was going to the toilet.
0: I think there were too many of us in the group <laughs> for us to get away with that one.
2: <laughs> so do you think that um, becoming commercially aware differs for aspiring private law barristers and public law
0: barristers? see, commercial awareness is one of those buzzwords, isn't it, yes. that everybody talks about? Oh, yeah, but commercially aware, commercially aware, commercially aware. And then when you actually drill down to see if there's any particular magic in it, there really isn't. Mm-hmm. Commercial awareness, for me, is understanding what your role in the job is. Okay? Sometimes people come to me and say, we know what we know, we're looking for somebody who can come in and give us some insight that we didn't have before, which is going to save us money or solve the problem or tell us the answer that we just couldn't see. But I I, I get quite a lot of that work because that's the sort of work, that's the reputation that I've got.
2: Yeah.
0: But is that commercially aware? I'm, Commercial awareness is being really good and understanding that you're there to try and help other people. And that means that if a thought occurs to me because I see a post online about something else, or if somebody sends me a message and says, I've done X, Y and Z, and you go, oh, hold on a second. You need to do something else as well. You're providing this holistic service. You're trying to provide something that covers people's backs, that makes sure they don't make the mistakes that they could otherwise make. It saves them some effort, saves them some money, saves them some stress, um, rather than just answering the question that they've asked you. Um,
2: So do you think becoming commercially aware should... Be easy and not stressful if the person has a genuine interest in the field that they want to get into, because they will be interested in reading that article, listening to this podcast. They'd just be like um, throwing themselves into it without thinking about. I need to become commercially aware. I don't.
0: I don't think there's, again. I don't think there's one right answer about what commercially aware is. And your, your question is: Is there a difference between private and public? Publicly funded work and what have you, and and ultimately, I suppose, you know, the answer to the question, the direct answer to the question, is that if you're doing publicly funded work, then you need to understand that they're trying to be as efficient as possible because there are finite funds available to to litigate the case, Um, whereas the if you're doing private. Work
2: mm. you
0: know, your commercial awareness is all about making sure that um, they can maximise their benefit,
2: financial the benefit.
0: So, so I suppose publicly, public law barristers are trying to maximise the benefit they get for the limited amount of funds, whereas privately you're trying to maximise the the funds that you get for the benefits that you provide. Um, but I think that's probably, not possibly, oversimplistic. I think commercial awareness is, is understanding that you are not the finished article, but you are there as a spare brain, um, not just a spare mouth. And I've always had this this differential between spare brain barristers and spare mouth barristers that we probably have too many barristers. Um, we're saturated as a profession and we end up with an awful lot of spare mouth barristers. Um But when somebody says, oh, I wasn't asked to advise on that, well, did you think about it? Yes. So why didn't you say something about it? Mm -hmm. I wasn't asked to advise that. Well, hold on, your commercial awareness is that actually you say, well, by the way, you need to have a think about this. Mm -hmm. And if you think that that's a rabbit hole, that's going to take you two or three hours to to dive down. And and you have to pick up the phone and says the solicitor and say, look, there's an issue here. Do you want me to deal with it? Mm -hmm. Because... It's going to take two or three hours of time, and you need. You, I think you need to know, um, and that relationship, that ability to talk to your solicitor, is what actually comes out at the far end of the process as your commercial awareness. You know what made you commercially work. Actually, what happened was I spoke to you about X, Y, and Z. That cemented the relationship, and something else came of that at a later date. Um, yeah. And, and, and you, can you pick that up from a book or do you actually just have to pick that up from dealing with people and talking to them? Um, I, I suspect the latter. Yeah. Uh, as long as you understand what you're trying to achieve by it.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think there's a, such a thing as over-preparing
0: for a
2: pupillage interview?
0: For interviews? No. Yeah. I, mean, I think, you think, it's, I think a thing think, is it's over-preparing for court? There's over-preparing for court. There's a, there, there is a, one of those sort of variants of Sod's Law that the more prep you put into a case, the less likely it is to go according to plan. And um, you, know, you can spend hours getting your prep and it'll settle at the door of the court. Um, over-preparing is... It's about whether... Whether you're micromanaging, that's which is what we're really talking about when we talk about over preparing. Mm -hmm. You know, reading something until you understand every single word, you know where every single word is on the page, is micromanaging the information. Okay. And there is a a, um, an efficiency there that you're lacking. If if you 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 have a finite amount of time to maximise the prep that you can do um, but you can't just sit there for weeks on end endlessly prepping you have to make a decision about where you want to focus your uh, interests and your time um, I remember a case years and years ago where it got dumped on me very late in the day um, I was to pick up this case at four o'clock for a Trial the following morning, and the trial bundles five full lever arch files, and there's about fourteen lever arch files in total. Wow! Uh, and you look at it, and you get to half two in the morning, and you think to yourself, "Well, I've got a choice now: of I can do, I can get myself four hours sleep, which is going to maximise my ability tomorrow to deal with the information I've got, or." I can spend another four hours trying to cram more information into my brain, but compromise the information I've got. Mm-hmm. And you, you then have to say, well, it's a two-day trial. I'm not going to get to that to that until day two. Let's focus on what I'm going to do with on day one. Is that the right way of doing it? It was on that occasion. Well, it was right until everything went wrong. But um, I told you before, it's all about what things, <laughs> when things go wrong in this job. Um, but it, it's. It's important that you balance um, efficiency with particularity. And, you know, we, people talk about perfectionism, which isn't the same as unrelenting standards. they are two sides of, the, of, the, of a very similar coin, but, you know, perfectionism is, is being upset about things that aren't 100%. Unrelenting standards is being upset when you're not giving 100%. And those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm firmly in the unrelenting standards camp. Um, and I've probably got a certificate somewhere to prove it. But um, <laughs> the, the but, but unrelenting standards or, or high standards is not the same as perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Understanding that, that there are things that you cannot control is a fundamental part of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yes, there is such a thing as over-preparing because if you want to prepare your pupillage interview or your submission to the court and you get derailed by the first question that comes back, Mm. you've wasted all your effort. Simple as that.
2: Yeah. So how do you think a person can become more um, of a creative problem solver?
0: Now that's the next, well, one of the next books. <laughs>
2: so, um, um, I think... I'm happy that our listeners are getting a sneak peek into this. <laughs> Exclusive.
0: I... I... So the creative problem-solving is, um, is not something... You, it's something that you can hone, but you've got to understand what you're trying to do do you can't it's not something that na- necessarily comes naturally but for a lot of people it is something that comes naturally to them um creative problem solving is about understanding the big picture mm-hmm. and it's about some of the themes we already talked about flexibility yeah. and um stepping back and stepping looking in at the small details, stepping back and looking at the big um picture um i always use um I always use a picture of the Tyne Bridge and talk about narrative arcs and that idea that the, the bridge itself does that, but the, the road does that, and everything is suspended to the right height so that right. when you drive across the bridge, it's it's a nice straight line. I'm um, comparing that to trying crossing a river by using stepping stones, which is a most ineffective way of doing it in terms mm-hmm. of you getting wet. And um, so, I, th- I think. I'm not sure whether it's a creative problem solver. You can become a better problem solver by understanding the patterns that naturally arise and trying to work out why what you've got in terms of the information available to you does or doesn't fit to those patterns that you see. Um, There's a chapter in the new book uh, entitled Shapes of Litigation, um, which all comes about because of driving down through the roadworks on the M six down to Birmingham probably 18 months ago or so ago now with my um third pupil Joe, I suddenly turned to him and went, Make a note of this, shakes of litigation and started dictating some nonsense <laughs> that just they're just coming to mind. And he's looking at me going, I think I preferred the music, you know. <laughs> I get out? Get out I'll get out the window at this point. Um But I think understanding what the the shape is that you're looking for, what the pattern is that you're looking for, and not saying I have to force the data that I've got, force the case I've got into that mould, but just acknowledge that the reason why the mould is that shape normally is because that's what works in this sort of generic situation. And that then allows you... um, an ability to, or an opportunity to jump the gaps. You know, fill in those lacunae in the information you've got. Use that fuzzy logic to think, well, where where do I want to get to? Where where's, What's my destination in all this? And and how can I get round the, the apparently insurmountable problem? Um, do I have to step back before I go forwards? Do I have to yeah. step to the side before I go forwards? Um, And, yeah, I I give talks on forensic thinking um, and the follow-up to the many people who work, but whatever I'm going to call it, it's going to be about forensic thinking, problem-solving, clear thinking. Um, And it's all about trying to give people ideas about how to solve non-linear problems. Because... Let's face it, if the problem was, if the answer was obvious, they wouldn't need me to tell them the answer. They should be able to work it out for themselves. So it, it, sometimes it's about redefining the question. Sometimes it's about looking at the, the, the evidence that you've got and the facts that you've got and the, the data points that you've got and saying, well, actually, you, you've, you've got this information, you just didn't realise it. Or if you just reorder it slightly, it'll fall into place for you. Um,
2: I like that. I like rethinking about the question, looking at it from a different
0: yeah. point of view. I think, I, think, I, think, I think thats what it's about stepping back and looking at everything and going, what have I actually got? What yeah. have I actually got here? Because if I'm looking at it too closely, I'll forget the bigger picture. And I think that's the, the key to problem solving i I mean i would read um lateral thinking by edward de bono or something like that um that's a book i haven't read for probably 30 years but it was something that uh i say 30 uh, horrible feeling it's 35 Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but it's 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 a and it's not a right riveting read but it's something that just encourages you to to think about the, the overall pattern, mm. uh, and the overall pieces of information you've got. Okay. Um, and so that, that's something that people can do. But what you're ultimately trying to, what you need to do is realise that you need to think about it rather than just assuming it's going to drop into your lap.
2: you think you should forget a little bit of what you already know to open up your mind for new things?
0: No, you. There's there's most most human brains are quite limited as to how many pieces of information they can hold. And I'm saddled with um, a memory for stories. I'm a very visual learner, uh, very visual teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopeless with names, but really good with stories and that sort of stuff. So we don't actually have a finite amount of information that we can recall what we can do have the finite amount of information that we can juggle at a particular time four or five people well three or four pieces of information for mo- most people if you can do five or six pieces of information you're an absolute world beater so it's about working out which pieces of information you've got which pieces of information you can stash for later it's a bit like when you, when you watch a juggler and the, you, know, you throw something really high in the air so you can do some fiddly stuff down here and the, the, this ball's up there still going up and up hold on it's, it's coming down it's coming down and now i can just bring it back into the the juggling exercise that i'm doing um so it's and, and that becomes one of uh, temper, uh, f- how you're thinking about it and how you're controlling your own thought processes to take on board new information as it comes in, and you, you juggle it and say, What's next? What's next? What's next? Um,
2: Those are great tips.
0: It'll so be that's. best in the book. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> um, so that's creative problem solving. What do you think some of the best ways uh, um, aspiring barristers can improve their written and oral advocacy skills? I think
0: we are. Um, I mean, there's obviously a huge emphasis in osmosis. You know, watch other advocates, what do they do? What do they say? I think the difficulty comes because when you're very junior or when you're mini-pupil, unless you know what's going on, you're going to spend an awful lot of your brain power trying to keep up. And... In a good mini-pupilage, I'd like to think that some of my former mini pupils have have had a decent (laughs) mini-pupilage with me. But if you understand what's going on today, um, what you'd love to get out of any uh, experience watching an experienced barrister is the nuances. Why did you ask the question in that way? Why did you ask that question at that stage? Why did you pause at that point all these time, so so, to really make the big step up, you need to not be taking of the note, not be hanging on every word, but to watch the body language. You know, have a look at the judge, have a look at the barristers. When when that little knowing aside to the jury, that little smile to the judge. Um, that little movement in the seat that makes it look like you're about to stand up to object. And then the sort of, yeah, actually it's not even worth the effort. It was a really duff point, wasn't it? Yeah. the judge got that. I'll move on. Uh, all those little things that so, so it's almost as if you're sort of watching and thinking to yourself, that's odd. Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Not the bog standard stuff where we just sort of tick the boxes. Um, I think just writing, it doesn't have to be poetry. It doesn't have to be... I mean, I, I think my letter writing is pretty good. Um, I enjoy writing letters. Um, I don't do it on a regular basis, but I, I, I will try and mark um, successful pupillage applications or um, exam results or anything like that with, from people that I've, I've, I've met. I'll, if I get the chance, I'll sit and write a letter. Um, a friend of mine I wrote him a letter to his son a letter to congratulating on his exam results and um, I I got a a phone call from from my friend saying you got an awful lot of credit with my wife for that Uh (laughs) Um, but we writing writing with a pen and paper you know just thinking about what the sentence is going to be uh, before you write it breathe before you speak Breathe in before you start speaking. Um, makes a massive difference to how you convey the point and, and where you get to understanding what you're trying to achieve by everything you say or do. Um, plan, 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 plan. But it's all very well said, plan, plan, plan. In, in reality, when you're on your feet, you might have half a second. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're you're just pausing, letting the judge catch up. Your honour has the point. Yes, okay. Let's move on to the next one. Um, and I think that idea of um, going back over stuff, you know, things like just a minute, are really interesting word games. You know, oh, I think right. it's it's. it's It's changed a little bit in the last 12 months. I read recently that they've been really struggling to find somebody since Nicholas Parsons died. But just a minute, it's fantastic. Why? Why? Because we're trying to avoid deviation, hesitation, repetition. Mm -hmm. I'm conscious when I'm talking to you if I've used the word twice in the same sentence. It's now just ingrained um, that I've used that particular phrase uh, already. I said before, I was talking about the best experience, getting the best experience out of your mini pupillage experience. I got to the end of the sentence, I've just used experience twice. Uh, um, That's okay there, isn't it? It is, but it doesn't mean that that we should tolerate it. We should be trying to be imaginative and we should be creative and we should Mm -hmm. be trying to... You're trying to engage your audience. People talk about um, barristers being frustrated actors. I've always said that we're more like frustrated comedians. We have material that other people have provided to us, we have material that we've written ourselves, we've got a style of delivery. We're trying to engage the audience. If they start throwing stuff at us or walking out, we're probably lost. Yeah. You try so- to get a response from your audience. To the story that you're trying to tell, um,
2: I've heard that you should re- repeat yourself a little bit though to really like make your point and get it into their heads,
0: I think not with the same on, words it depends on your audience, I mean, I think the structure and tempo and you know if you've got a structure that says, well, I've got three points and they are this and this and this mm-hmm. these are points that we can it we use to convey ideas but if you're talking to a judge that's completely different from talking to a jury yeah um you've got you know my my advocacy is all judge-based i'll have a written argument sent in in advance normally um there's a structure to the submission that you're making um you you're drawing these different threads together from the evidence or you you've got a chronology that you're going to go through and make the points about how the chronology applies uh, and how it's relevant to the facts of the case um which comes with practice undoubtedly comes with practice um but if a, a judge will sit there and go well you have it was a good point the first time you told me that, but the second time around, I'm I'm starting to wonder why you needed to tell me it twice. Um, So there's a healthy degree of cynicism that comes off the bench sometimes. I'm sure. Um, So uh, yes, there there are simple techniques for structure. You know, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what I'm telling you. And then I'm going to tell you what I've told you. Yeah. These are basic Uh ideas, but they're like learning to drive a car. You know, By the time you've been driving for six months, mirror, signal, manoeuvre is just what you do. Whereas the first three lessons, mirror, signal, manoeuvre, mirror, signal, manoeuvre, But you get this muscle memory. You, You get a verbal muscle memory. You get a mental muscle memory from doing these cases time and time again. You end up looking at... You might have multiple witnesses in a case where the same issues are going to arise in respect of each of those witnesses, and you get this deja vu moment where you're when you cross-examine. Did I ask him this question? No, no, I asked the other one on that question. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm. And you are only with a tick box, you know, as a sort of checklist of what you've asked each witness, um, and that's so, so you you're reaching into this sort of. Um, Ballast in your brain, uh, this experience is a crude experience, and saying, Which bits do I need to pull out? Which bits do I not need to worry about? Which need you? Know, which bits do I need to emphasise? And that's as much to do with the case or the judge or the witness or the time of day or, you know, if, if you're at 4 o'clock and you can see the judge is starting to doze off, you're going to approach it a very different way from if yeah. it's 10 o'clock and everybody's bright and, and breezy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what the experience teaches you. And there's no getting away from that. There isn't a, a, a shortcut to acquiring twenty years of experience.
2: Yeah. So, what do you think the biggest min- misconception um, of the bar is?
0: Um. <clears throat> so many of them. There are, yeah. <laughs> yeah there, there are. Um. I think. I think. Who's misconception? I mean, there are misconceptions of people at the bar wanting to join the bar or people who've got nothing to do with the bar. And I think Mm -hmm. each of those three groups has has a different misconception. I think the biggest misconception... um, Let's go for aspiring barristers. biggest misconception about the bar for aspiring barristers um, is... Uh, for most of them, that they're good enough, actually. (laughs) That sounds sounds dreadful, doesn't it? Um, But but the the biggest misconception about the bar for aspiring barristers is that um, simple, hard work and chipping away will turn you into a successful barrister. Right. Um, I I think you need to have... um, an innate ability, and you need to have a lot of good luck. And the two reasons there are two reasons why you won't get a pupillage. One is that you're not good enough, and the other is that you're not lucky enough.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's really difficult to see beyond those two reasons for mm. not getting a pupillage. And the, the problem is that to get into that cohort where you're making the application, you, you're, you're applying, you are going to be pretty good by any objective standard. You, know, you you you've got a two-one degree, or, or you know, you've got a good degree and a good bar school year behind you, and you've spent quite a lot of money, and you you've been educated to within an inch of your life, and you can't tie your own shoelaces. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the 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 difficulty is that we know we know that the vast majority of these very good candidates, objectively very good candidates are not good enough and that's really awful because we don't like giving people bad news we never nobody's ever liked giving people bad news let's be realistic the human condition is not about giving people bad news um but we are so
2: do you give people bad news? Sorry to interrupt you. I know, but I'm all fashioned. You don't give, but you don't give feedback, do you? Like do people ever actually get this
0: constructive criticism? Um I I like to think that I try. I mean, yeah, when we rejected mini pupils when it was when I was in charge of the the scheme, and it's a bit different now because I think we all get the all get a a nice, polite letter now, rather than the mean ones yeah. that I used to send out. I used to send out three different levels of letter, rejection, firm rejection, polite, firm, and uber-firm. Oh, that's nice of you. <laughs> then have of... to use an
2: apostrophe <laughs> next time <laughs> to come
0: back. Uh, but, it, but it was giving feedback about... We, we tried to give information to everybody about who applied. We tried to give them the basic information that we would give if they came in for pupil from any pupilage. Um, you know, we, we can't see everybody. We saw in the six years I was in charge of the scheme, I got 500 mini pupils through the door. Now, in the context of most sets of chambers seeing 12 to 20 a year, mm. I, I, I bent me back to try and get people through the door. And those yeah. people who couldn't get through the door, I felt obliged to try and give some of the information that they wouldn't otherwise get from elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I think one of the difficulties with giving people feedback is that all too often they see your, they either take the feedback personally they get really uptight about the criticism, what they perceive as criticism. And then they say that they're offended and they shout at you for offending them. And then you say, well, being offended doesn't make you right. Um, I was just trying to help. Um, <laughs> but um, the, the, the bigger problem is that you end up with them saying, ah, in that case, if I tick this box and I clone that answer and I will gradually, if I ask a hundred people, what do I need to change about my CV? I'll end up being somebody completely different from who I am.
2: Yeah.
0: But hey, I'll get it. And, and I, I've never been somebody for um, writings sort other of people's CVs for them because ultimately if you're being interviewed for a, a, a pupillage they want to know that they're getting Stephanie and not getting David. Mm-hmm. Um, I can I can hold a mirror up to an application. I can make people think about how they present and and what they can do better. Um, somebody referred to me as a Northern Socrates a few months ago, which I thought was very funny. I think probably because I've been watching Bill and Ted the uh, the, the previous week and the the Socrates character from that. But but I'll try and make people think about how to be a better barrister how to be a better pupil how to be a better candidate without telling them this is what you must do um the the misconception i think the misconception is that there's enough space in there for everybody and the reality is that there simply isn't yeah um i think the bar itself has a misconception that um it's all too easy for people to forget that we are a service industry. I think that's, that's, that's one of the problems that, and and, and that's a crossover. That's a crossover between the students who want to be in there and the, the barristers themselves. Um, but I think it's all too easy to think it's about you. And, um, I've always gone to great pains to tell my clients that, as far as I'm concerned, they're the most important person in the room, Mm. even though they're wearing a T-shirt that, frankly, should be burnt, and um, I'm sitting there in a three-piece suit. Um, Because it is. Yeah. That's the important thing. I think the biggest misconception about, from the outside, about the bar, is that they all look like me. Um, They all talk like me, think like me, and and that, you know, I don't think that's right. I don't think I'm a, a core. I'd like to think I, would, I represented what the bar is, but I don't yeah. think I'm the sole representative. I never held myself up to be the sole representative of the bar. Um, I think the bar is a, a vibrant, diverse profession. Um, you'll always find somebody who says, well, I think it should be more vibrant and more diverse, particularly in respect of, the group of individuals of which I happen to be a member. And yeah. whenever you find somebody saying that the bar needs more people like them, what they actually mean is they need me. <laughs> they, need, they, need, they need this person at the bar, not the other person who looks very like me or sounds very like me or does whatever. Um, no, the question is, the, the, the question is, are you good enough? To represent somebody on what could be the most important day of their life? And do you understand that in those circumstances it really, really isn't about you? And that's <laughs> that's quite hard. That's philosophically and mentally, that's a real bit of mental gymnastics because because You've been selected after this gladiatorial bloodbath to get through to this, this moment in time where you're going to be selected all the pupillage applicants. You've got your pupillage. You've got your tenancy. You go into court, and then there's somebody else coming along who's going to try and beat you around the head and represent their client. So it's all about you, the, the, the alpha mm-hmm. individual, And then, but you're only there as the champion for the client.
2: So it sounds like there'd be quite a lot of pressure, right, in this moment. So do you think that the type of person that is suited um, for a career at the bar is somebody that has got very, I don't know, like tough skin, that can handle pressure very well or is there something else that is
0: suitable? Um, I've always said that the, the key attributes are um, good luck, uh, thick skin, um, big brain, sociopathic work ethic and more good luck. Um, and, uh, I'll stand by those. Yeah. Um, I think i was having an interesting conversation with my son this morning, um, who, by the way, really doesn't want to be a barrister. Um, why is that because he's seen me you know, he goes um but we were talking about introverts and extroverts and where people might lie on the scale you know if not, if, if if zero is pure introvert and 100 is pure extrovert where do people actually land on the scale you know, where, where do people lie on that scale um, and I think that a lot of people who don't know me would turn around and say, you know, you're a barrister, you you put yourself out there, you talk to people, you write, you lecture, you do all these things. Um, gosh, what an extrovert you must be. Um, and he, he he said that he thought that I was maybe a 60, 65 on, on that scale, and I, I think he's probably too high. I think I'm probably perceived myself as maybe a forty, probably in the middle crunch, but I, th- I think that um, the bar suits people who are uh, mentally quite tough because I think it is a challenging and stressful profession. Um, and there's an awful lot of talk about well-being at the bar and people overdoing it and, and needing to be very aware of that. Um, I think that an ability to disassociate is really important. I think that idea of stepping back from the case at the end of it and going, not my problem anymore. Um, it's been, it's gone, I can't change it. That accepting that the past is something that you can't change is really important. Um Understanding that sometimes you're going to win cases that you uh, thought you were going to lose, and vice versa. Um, but there are going to be more cases that you lose that you thought you were going to win than cases that you win that you thought you were going to lose. Because if you think you're going to lose a case, you very rarely fight it. <laughs> so yeah. you, you, the, 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 there's a there's a bias there. That you think, really, I've not lost another one. I thought I was going to win. But the reality is that that that's always going. To, those are always going to outnumber. The, the alternative, the mirror image case. Um, I think it depends on the type of work you want to do.
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, It's all about skill set. It's, people come in and they go, oh, I think I'm going to be a really good criminal barrister. Um, if that's not your skill set, that's not your skill set. If you're a really good um, person in terms of advising, in writing, you'll do a different sort of work from if you're really good on your feet. Mm-hmm. Simple. Um, and you know and you can develop those skills, but you still need to have a core skill set that you're then going to get better and better. At, and work at those weaknesses, Work at those things that you're not quite as good at. Um, you know, work at client care, work at how you talk to people, work at how you um, interact with people. Be aware that every single interaction is going to be slightly different
2: um be aware think,
0: of all of that all of that bit of chapter 10 in there going on <laughs> um, but, but I, think that, I think that's right i don't think there's again we keep on coming back to this there isn't one right answer um i think the world will be people say it would be a very boring place if everybody was the same i think it would be a very terrifying place if everybody was the same as me um I think I'm, I'm sure it
2: wouldn't be ter- terrifying or terrible. Terrifying, terrifying,
0: <laughs> terrifying. I think I'm no terrifying. <laughs> the world itself would be <laughs> terrified. Uh, um, but you know, we, it, it's about being the right person for the right job, and sometimes you know you you won't get a. Uh, you won't get an interview or you won't get a, an offer from a set of chambers. Um, and it just wasn't the right time or the right place for you to be. Mm. You know, you, I've lost count of the cases. I've done a really good job for a client, got a fantastic result. You come home feeling 10 feet tall, thinking, great, I'm going to get more work from them. That's going to be fantastic. And you never hear from them again. Yeah. And then you'll do some half ask half big piece of nonsense case which is everything goes wrong and you're thinking I really hope I never have to work for these people again because they're just terrifying I mean, every time I open the papers it's like what, what, what have I got today and, and they keep coming back and it's like no I want to work for them I did a really good job <laughs> so you you can't control or I, I don't think you can control what comes through the door that's part and parcel of the cab rank rule you end up as this mahout on the back of the elephant, trying desperately to sort of tweak it one way or the other as it rampages through life um, without having the control you'd like to exercise. Um, I think you just need to do a
2: good job with whatever you do and whatever comes back, I think, anyway.
0: You've got to look yourself in the mirror. You've got to look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day or the end of the week or before you go to court in the morning and going, you know, I'm doing the right thing. This is, this is, I've I've got, today I've got it right. And if I didn't get it right, why didn't I get it right? And what can I do tomorrow to make it Mm -hmm. better? And that comes back to our unrelenting standards issues about always trying to put in the, the because, because if you, unrelenting standards is is about, if you only put in 98% and you lose, what if you'd put in 100%? If I get to 49 if I put in 98% and I get to 49% but still come second, if I put in those extra 2% and given my all, would I have crawled over to 51% and won? Mm. That's, that's the analysis. And you know, that can be really dangerous, but equally, it's, it's what motivates you to be really good. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't think people necessarily want to accept that or advertise that that's what motivates them. Uh, but I'd rather be on record as saying I want to be really good. Not yeah. the best. I'm not, I'm not the best. I want to be the best. But I want to be the best person I can be. I want to be the best advocate I can be. I want to be really good. Yeah. I'd rather be that than diffident. Yeah. <laughs> that's
2: a great piece of advice. So I have kept you on here for too much time. I'm sure you have got so many other cases to be preparing for in trials. But before I do let you go, do you have any other words of wisdom? I'm sure you've got tons of words of wisdom, actually, but
0: one more piece yeah. for us. Um, apart from read my book, no, um, I would go... Chapter 12. Chapter 12 <laughs> in the book is... is um, I think, really important. Um, each of the chapters starts with a, a monologue, a diatribe, a rant, yes. and then an explanation about why it's important uh, and then opportunities to put it into practice. But Chapter 12 is a bit different um, as you look around I'm trying to find it. I'm trying it. to find it. I can see it over there. You can <laughs> see it over there. So so the the, the, di- the the monologue in Chapter 12 is the advice The distillation of advice over the years I've been taking many pupils um, who've asked me, you know, what advice have you got for interview? What advice have you got for scholarship interviews, pupillage applications? What advice have you got? And after a little bit, I I distilled it down to this. Balance forensic intensity with calm self-awareness. be good, don't be a prat, (laughs) give it oomph, all that we've talked about, that forensic intensity that comes with physical presence and mental acuity and hard work and preparation and, and all those positives that we want to bring, all of us, they put us on a tightrope wire with no safety net. That's what the bar is. And you've still got to have a self-awareness that you're not overstepping the mark. It's pushing really, really hard, but still having that, that balance to it.
2: It's funny, isn't it? It sounds to me like you have to be yourself... I stay calm. I, there, do you know what? Like there's it doesn't sound like there's a this is all gonna come out really wrong. It sounds like you have to be yourself, stay calm, but also there's so much to think about.
0: It is weird. It's imagine imagine um Imagine a, a, a guitar maestro, yeah, playing you know some solo at one hundred and eighty beats a minute. You know, dragon force turned to volume eleven on your on your speakers. Whatever, mm. it sounds at first blush as if everything is running away. That there's this avalanche of notes flying at you from all all directions, that this is somebody who is playing as fast as they humanly can at the expense of control and melody and the sound quality that's actually being produced. And then you realise that actually it's perfectly controlled that somebody somewhere has is a genuine maestro playing so very quickly, yet having that control without ever apparently missing a note. Mm -hmm. If you sit there and you listen very, very carefully, you'll find that actually there are probably missed notes in there, but you'll never notice them at full speed. Um, And that's what we're trying to achieve if you're nervous and stuttery and stammering not because you've got speech impediment but because you can't get your head ahead of your your brain ahead of your mouth um, you end up sounding like those very early Wayne Rooney interviews where every other word was aim 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 and and as soon as you hear it you can't unhear it (laughs) Now, um,
2: okay, now that's a lovely way of putting it that's what we're trying to do we're
0: just trying to be we're, we're trying to be really good um, because our clients need us to be really good and those are my words of wisdom the, the, like that, that. That, that, that that's you, you is not about you. And on that note,
2: excuse the pun, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to thank you for your time and for all of your words of wisdom. Say goodbye.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Stephanie.
1: This is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place. Through the University of Law's pro bono programme, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment-focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. The University of Law will help you reach your ambitions by delivering an outstanding academic and employment-focused experience honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. As soon as you begin your studies with U-Law, you'll learn how to think and act like a lawyer. Whether your aspirations are in law or other fields, their courses will balance academic rigour and practical skills so your career starts from day one. To find out more about the courses they have on offer, just click the link in the description box of the podcast. To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button
2: and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.